This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes at patreon.com slash bestofleft to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the recent rebellion in Puerto Rico that unseated the governor, as well as plenty of the context of what has led us to this point. Now, I'll admit right up front that uh, this episode is a few days late, uh, but not a dollar short, I don't think. I'll be explaining at the end of the show, for those who are interested, why this episode is a few days late. But before we get started, I I wanted to touch on one point, which is the concept of the colonial mindset. This gets talked about in today's episode, and uh, I, I just wanted to touch on that before we get into it. Um, It's an emerging phrase. I think it's getting used more and more. It's sort of, uh, um, well, yeah, it's an emerging phrase. Uh, People are uh, beginning to come to terms with it, uh, maybe slowly over the last several decades, but it's, it's getting more traction these days. It goes hand in hand, I would say, with the concept of decolonization, which we've also talked about on the show, at least in bits and pieces now and then, another emerging phrase that is gaining traction. So I I just wanted to see if I could address this. And, uh, you know, I thought it would be appropriate that, uh, you know, I, as a white guy born and raised on uh, mainland USA, could, could try to describe what it feels like to have a colonial mindset. No, no, no. Obviously, I'm joking. That's not at all what I'm going to do. I think I can do the opposite. I think if you're anyone who's raised in mainland USA or, frankly, other countries that are sort of similar, um, and I think it'll make sense, but, you know, the Canadas and the UKs and the Australias, I mean, at least the uh, the non-indigenous inhabitants of those countries, uh, for sure, could have rather than a colonial mindset, um, what might be called an empowered mindset. So I was trying to think, like, what mindset does America have? What mindset do I have that's based on having been raised in the U.S.? And what came to mind was whenever we see something that is going horribly wrong in the world, some atrocity has happened, some human rights violation what very often comes to mind for Americans is we should do something about that. And what you have to understand is that that reaction comes from the fact that we can do something about that. So that's what I mean by the empowered mindset. The the fact that there is institutional power in the United States. There's institutional financial resources. There is institutional uh, military power, those sorts of things. That means that we don't just have to think, oh, that's too bad. I wish that wasn't happening. We can and often do think to ourselves, we should do something about that. And then we go take action, often militarily. So you could call it an empowered mindset, depending on the circumstance, you could certainly call it an imperialistic mindset. But right now, we're not debating foreign policy, we're just talking about uh, the mindset that brings us to those sorts of decisions. So if you can understand the connection between how uh, being raised in a society that has these sorts of Uh, systemic institutional resources available to us opens 
the realm of possibilities for what we do as a country, uh, what we think we should do, you know, what, what an, as an individual, what we think the country should do and how that could even trickle down into what we think we could do individually in our own lives. If we, uh, and you know, not just, you know, work hard and achieve your dreams, but you know, the, the concept of if you want to uh, change something about the way the government works, depending on the structures of your government and its responsiveness to its citizens, you can see how that would influence how empowered one would feel. I would argue that Americans used to feel a lot more empowered about changing their government than they do currently. So you can you can see how that can change with circumstances over time. So I couldn't possibly begin to speak on what it feels like to be in a colonial mindset, and it wouldn't be appropriate for me to try. But I do think that I can understand what it is like to have a mindset that is born out of the place from which I have come. And so if you can understand how, where you were born, where you are raised, what you are taught, how that can influence what you think about the possibilities available to you in the world, then I think it makes it easier to hear someone who's come from another place, uh, a, a less empowered place, and when they say that they have a different reaction to the world, you can understand where that might come from. So, you know, you, if you're coming from just a, a less empowered country, they they might think, oh, that that human rights abuse, that's that's really terrible. I wish that wasn't happening. But they might not think instinctually, my country should go to war for this because maybe their country doesn't have the institutional power and instinct to do that sort of thing. But then you go one step further, think about a place like Puerto Rico that doesn't even have full sovereignty over its land, that when they have, when their local governance can be overruled by another governing power where there is no representation, that is almost by definition a colony. <laughs> I mean, we, we don't shy away from calling Puerto Rico a colony of the United States, but that is the incredibly disempowering aspect of being a colony. So if you can understand what I was saying about what it is like to have an empowered mindset, then I, I hope that it'll be easier to be able to understand and appreciate what someone means by what they say when they describe a colonial mindset and, and to understand that it's not a personal failing. It's not a lack of resolve. It's a mindset that is not individual. It's systemic throughout the society for systemic reasons that come from the outside, not from within. It comes from a mindset that is born from the place where a person comes from, just as an empowered mindset is. And so with that, we'll begin the show in earnest. We have a full lineup today. Clips today come from Newsbeat, Why Is This Happening?, Jacobin Radio, On the Media, Counterspin, Code Switch, This Is Hell, The Takeaway, Latino USA, Democracy Now!, and In the Thick.
Puerto Rico is a uh, is an enigma to the United States because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but what happens in Puerto Rico never happened at all. The United States controls Puerto Rico's banking system, court system, currency, defense, uh, environmental protections, judicial codes. All the federal agencies of the United States have a jurisdiction, concurrent and dominant jurisdiction whenever, whenever there's any, any conflict. Uh, U.S. controls Puerto Rico's shipping, pricing structure, customs, tariffs, duties, taxes, I can go on and on. The devaluation of the Puerto Rican currency by 40%, which caused a lot of people to starve and, and die. The expropriation of Puerto Rico's land, such that by within 30 years, close to 80%, three quarters of, the, of the Puerto Rico's farmland was owned by U.S. corporations. The denial of a minimum wage, the imposition of U.S. citizenship one month before World War I, exactly one month from March 2 to April 2, so that 18,000 Puerto Ricans could be conscripted and go fight in World War I, shoot and get shot at. The gag law, which made it a felony punishable by 10 years to say a word, sing a song, any utterance, owning a flag, anything in favor of independence or against the United States. The Ponce Massacre, where people that were unarmed, walking on Palm Sunday, in favor of independence were, all, were gunned down and 17 men, women, and children were killed and over 200 went to the hospital. The Rio Piedras massacre where the chief of police of Puerto Rico, E. Francis Rigg, murdered three nationalists and a poor guy buying a lottery ticket as an innocent bystander and then he called the press and he says, well, we're declaring if you guys are going to instigate, we're going to have a war against all Puerto Ricans. The mass sterilization of specifically the La Operación, where they tie the tubes without telling them, without informed consent of close to 100,000 women. But then the pill that was tested on many hundreds of thousands of women, and they had medical consequences. And some of those were undisclosed clinical trial studies on two generations of Puerto Rican women. The way that they irradiated certain prisoners, especially Albizu Campos, and they called it TBI, Total Body Irradiation, which they denied. And they called Albizu Campos the king of the towels because he was putting cold, wet towels on his body to protect himself from the radiation. In other words, the torture and slow burning of the leadership of Puerto Rican leaders, uh, the leadership on, on the island. Bombing of two towns in broad daylight, Hayuya and Utuado. The arrest of 3,000 Puerto Ricans in the space of a week after the Hayuya uprising. The mobilizing of 5,000 troops to effectuate the, uh, those arrests. The killings of Filiberto Ojeda Rios by the FBI where they let him bleed to death. The assassination of two people at Cerro and the mountain of Cerro Maravilla, which the FBI then tried to, to cover up. The um, constant beating down of anyone literally the physical beating down of people that tried to not work for starvation wages in the farms of, of Puerto Rico for, for decades, especially in the, in the 20s and 30s. And the uh, psychological violence that's done on, on people when they are misled, fooled, deceived into thinking that they're, that they're free when they've actually been coerced into this relationship with the United States, which now results in the current day violence of having a financial control board glomming itself and exercising jurisdiction over the entire economy of Puerto Rico, cutting pensions, closing schools, closing hospitals, basically a credit collection agency for hedge funds. 
and just a vehicle for creating a more a greater division of wealth, making people move. That's a violence because people die when their pensions are cut and they can't get health care. So it's just a, a continuum. And there's some high points of violence and you see them very clearly, but there's the, the underlying violence that exists all throughout. And that's maybe the more powerful one. It's a violence predicated on ignorance and misdirection and propaganda up here in the United States so that people don't know what's being done in Puerto Rico for the last century. They left Philly Beto bleed to death. So many wept, FBI crap left about a hundred shots at his rest. Hands on his chest, couldn't stop the blood flow Suffocating blood, traveling through the lungs slow Grito de lares, resisting all the conquest Betances, sacrifice, unity, the process Gracias al bisu, le lolita teach you About Puerto Rico, our flag was illegal The gag law, task force, pulling out our passports Hands on the dashboard, face on the asphalt Anytime we ask for freedom, we just get bashed more Because the push for industrialization Because the push for, like, companies coming, mostly farmers pharmaceutical companies in like the 60s and the 70s in Puerto Rico, things were good. You know, I grew up in the 70s and in the 80s in Puerto Rico as a kid. Um, I don't want to say it was like the 50s Americana, but it, there's a lot of nostalgia for that time. Mm. It was kind of where we were kind of, you know, the suburban life of Puerto Rico was definitely very Americanized and you kind of still felt Puerto Rican, but it was getting more commercialized. I just remember, you know, when MTV showed up on cable and I was like 12 and I was like, wow, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, we were starting to be sort of like the, the kids of an American, like seventies and eighties pop culture. Right. That was sort of brewing at the same time. And because of these uh, tax breaks called section nine thirty six, it was basically giving mostly pharmaceutical companies, but other American companies to come to the Island set up shop, get a tax break and create jobs. And there's a lot of friends of mine and their dads like, and their moms, like they had good jobs. Right. I mean, you've got essentially the establishment of the island negotiating this weird liminal territorial status in ways <laughs> that will yeah. create win-wins for like American capital and Puerto Ricans, essentially, right? I mean, the, the idea is, yes, you know, Puerto Rican elite. Yeah, we, we can we can create inducements. We have a pool of cheaper labor than in the states. We've got this territory that we have a weird relationship with, but is a bulwark against, I don't know, like the Marxists on Cuba and the Soviets. So, <laughs> exactly. like, and we'll create these kind of you know this special deals where you can go down and pharmaceutical companies and others and get tax inducements to open. And that was at least at the ground level for sort of the middle class building of Puerto Rico. You're saying was like a fairly effective, if not necessarily like redistributively just, but fairly effective as economic stimulus on the island. Yeah, and and obviously, as with any development, this is where sort of the problems start happening because. There is sort of a political elite class that I would argue that is really more, you know, San Juan based, privileged, you know, middle class, upper class. Like that's kind of who ruled, who has been ruling Puerto Rico for, for decades. And this is where you start seeing the beginnings of the problems and the problems being that, OK, we're starting to maintain this. We have this industry, you know, we have tourism and we want to provide services. Let's start borrowing money it was a very easy way to maintain these services because wall street and financial firms were like, yeah, here's some bonds, go for it. Puerto Rican bonds are great. And they just kept buying and, you know, 
raising their debt load and everything's good and because we have all these companies and then the mid 90s come around and you remember the grand bargain between Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton? Yeah, I mean, I when, remember that they they had a bunch of budget fights, some resulted in shutdowns and they struck a series of budget deals. So one of the biggest budget deals was the elimination over the course of 10 years the section 936 the tax break so part of wow. the big grand bar- yeah part of the big grand bargain between Clinton and Gingrich was we got to phase these out so this is probably 1996 so if you start thinking about it Puerto Rico is borrowing a lot of money you know oh there's just happens to be like corruption as well because this is all tied to what's happening now Pedro Rosselló who's Ricardo Rosselló's dad was governor of Puerto Rico in the mid nineties in the early two thousands. So, you know, if you look at his history, there's like 40 people that got, I don't know. It's countless. I I don't know. I don't know the exact number, but there's like a lot of people within his administration got arrested for, you know, corruption charges. Wow. So there's sort of this culture of in Puerto Rico of where's my piece of, of the action. And there's sort of been this culture of whatever happens you're going to get a financial gain, especially if you're in government or if you have connected, if you're in connections. You know, one of the things when you talk about the electrical grid and the electrical company, which was called Prepa, it's a subsidiary, right? It's publicly owned by the government of Puerto Rico. And so so the governor, any governor of Puerto Rico could like assign a political appointee to run the utility company, which, I mean, if you think about it, that's just... <laughs> I mean, that just leads to a lot of problems. Right. But fast forward to 2006 when when the 936 like tax breaks start going away and you're this pretty simple. You're spending a lot. Right. Companies begin to start leaving. You're still borrowing and people are starting to leave. You're still borrowing. And then we get to this massive debt crisis. Yeah, uh, probably like, you know. 2012, well, 2013, 14, like that's where it gets all right. That's, so that's that that timing is really useful, I think. So you've got the 936 sort of tax break, which is a sort of like special tax inducement for American firms to to relocate and to do business in Puerto Rico. You start right. phasing it out in 1996 on a 10-year sunset. T- 2006 is the end of that. 2007 is peak housing bubble, but the beginning of the financial exactly. crisis, and then exactly. it's financial crisis. Like exactly. that's a real double whammy. And then exactly. on top of that, and and correct me if I'm wrong here. I mean, there's something a little similar to the Greek situation, which is what happens in Greece is both the Greek economy and the Greek budget are not in great shape, but their right. sovereign debt is trading as if it's interchangeable with other EU debt. Yes, Puerto Rico has a similar relationship with the U.S. Right, where it's like. Right. In some ways, there's a way in which Puerto Rican sovereign debt is being priced in that the U.S. government will backstop it. This is why I love being a journalist and a political journalist and not a financial reporter, because <laughs> it's flipping complicated. Yeah. Because I think they make it complicated in a lot of ways. I've attended a couple of like conferences that were in New York, you know, where the governor of Puerto Rico, the former uh, Alejandro Garcia Padilla, who was a pro-Commonwealth governor, like he was speaking, was at the height of the debt crisis. And what are we going to do now? And how are the feds going to help us? And I remember like there were bondholders there and there were like financial experts. And I'm really trying, you know, I'm like super eager journalists, like Puerto Rican journalists. I'm really trying to understand how this restructuring is going to help sort of this wealth inequality that even though like when we talk about the 70s and the 80s, the wealth gap starts definitely beginning to separate, you know, sectors of Puerto Rico. And I think the political elite 
was always like, oh, we're going to take care of our own. But like, you know, the poor, eh, whatever. And I remember like asking these financial guys at, at this conference because I was really trying to be like, okay, do they understand the consequences? And I'm like, well, you know, like this is going to close schools and it's going to end services, whatever we, whatever happens. And it was all austerity, austerity, austerity. Like there was no soul or compassion. And that's the part where I wrote a piece in 2015 for The Guardian. <laughs> the headline was great. And it's actually my NBC Think editor, Megan Carpentier, who used to be at The Guardian. Now she's at NBC Think and she's amazing. And she wrote, uh, the headline that she wrote for me was, it's like politicians think Puerto Ricans are dumb or something like that, but they created the debt crisis and we know that. And it really spoke to this level of corruption and complicity with the United States and with financial interests and how we've allowed it as Puerto Ricans to happen and how a lot of people have profited off that, you know, venture capital firms and hedge funds and people in Puerto Rico. That's where I was like, wow, this is really going to be like a mess. Yeah. And what's going to happen? And then that's when you start getting into uh, the PROMESA legislation that, um, that eventually became bipartisan that was signed by President Obama that created a fiscal control board. And at the time, there was a lot of people in Puerto Rico, even the governor of Puerto Rico right now, Ricardo Rosselló, who were vehemently against it because guess what? It kind of looked like colonialism again. You've got this weird situation. And so the legislation that's signed by Barack Obama sets up this bizarre entity, which is the, f it meets in New York and it's in Spanish, it's called a junta, right? <laughs> Someone yeah, told la junta, me which is like, if you think about it in Spanish, it's like la junta. Yeah. You know, it's like a bat, you know, that yeah. can you get something more imposing? Yeah. Of, you know, you start thinking of images of, you know, caudillos and dictators and it's right. like la junta. And when the board, what's interesting is like, um, at the time, because there was a Republican majority in Congress, right, with Obama, Yep. basically what it comes down to is there were four Republican appointees and three Democratic appointees on the board. Uh, some are Puerto Rican, some are not. <laughs> I mean, there's, I think, uh, and they basically came down and they're like, okay, we're going to help you run your finances. And I will give Rosselló credit on, on this, Ricardo Rosselló. He, he was one of the people who was like, when he was running for governor in 2016, he wasn't for it. Right. And so La Junta brought back some bad colonial memories and it kind of reminded Puerto Ricans that, yeah, we're not really American. You know, when people say like, oh, Puerto Ricans are American citizens, I'm like, no, we're not. We're second class. We don't have rights. And here we go again. And then you, they go to these meetings, Chris, and, and, and some would be in New York, right? Most of them, and some would be in San Juan, and they're trying to be transparent, and they're, like, dealing with, like, pensions and school closings and the fact that the government spends too much and, you know, you can't have holiday pay. Like, in, in Puerto Rico, it's like a culture. You get, you know, you get, like, a Christmas bonus. It's like, no Christmas bonus for you, which is like, what is this, Scrooge? Like, that's the part where you're like, come on. And they were very, uh, you know, and especially when you had non-Puerto Ricans on the board, they would, I remember one of them in a report was talking about, well, they, you know, Puerto Ricans can't work. Like their work ethic is not as, um, not as strong. And you're like, wow. Okay. We're just, we're just going back to like 1898. And so this was happening and Rosselló is trying. And then September 20th, 2017 happens, which is Hurricane Maria.
Today's episode is sponsored by Credo, who asks, Do you stand for women's rights in the environment? Well, Credo Mobile is the phone company that stands with you. Credo is the only phone company in America that supports the same causes you do. Causes fighting to stop climate change and protect reproductive freedom and immigrant rights. Credo donates $150,000 every month to groups like Rainforest Action Network, Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and many more, while other phone companies spend millions to push through mega-mergers and fund right-wing politicians. You make choices every day about where to spend your money, so make sure you're making the right choice with your mobile phone company. Switch to Credo Mobile now, and as a reward, you'll get 12 pints of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. That's a pint a month for 12 months. You'll also get coverage on the nation's largest, most reliable network, along with low rates and a complete selection of smartphones, including the latest models from the top brands. So make the switch today. Go to credo.com slash best, or enter the offer code BEST at checkout. That's C-R-E-D-O dot com slash best. Politically, we, we are suffering on two fronts. First, we have an administration that has to do barely nothing in order to, to be thought of as having done something. Because Hurricane Maria was so rough that basically if they just bring things back to where they were, which was still like an, an economic crisis, they would be considered like a good administration. So that's terrible politically for Puerto Ricans because what they're going to compare their state, uh, the state of governments, is to Hurricane Maria and, no, and not to the state Puerto Rico was in prior to Hurricane Maria. The other front is, uh, is that Puerto Ricans have lowered their expectations of government because uh, during, during the, the hurricane, uh, we had an absent state. And the hurricane was so, so devastating that most people for the first two, three weeks to sort of excuse the government is like, oh, there's nothing they can do. Everything is shut down. Everything is destroyed. We have to give them time. But after a while, when, when people found out that nothing was happening and they started doing it themselves and helping and starting doing mutual aid uh, centers for feeding themselves, etc. So we had an absent government. And that has lowered expectations. And people right now don't expect the government to do anything. So that's that's what makes this whole scandal with the with the chat uh, more exasperating because they were getting away with everything, with shutting down the schools. They, they had shut uh, more than 300 public schools. And uh, Julia Kelleher, the former secretary of education, just got arrested uh, on charges of corruption and uh, money laundering. And she had an outrageously large salary on a country that's in debt and it's bankrupt. And still she had like a $250,000 uh, contract. And now we know that all that money that she, she was handling, it was being uh, misused and, and, and stolen. Even before the hurricane, the Puerto Rican economy... By, by standard measures, let alone measures of human welfare, but by standard measures, Puerto Rico had been in, in recession for over a decade. Uh, and, you know, since, since the, the, the uh, hurricane, it's been it's worse, of course. What's the economic situation like uh, for Puerto Ricans? Since the, the global economic crisis in 2008, before that, we, we, we were in a crisis. But since 2008, we have been in, a, in an economic depression. That was what prompted the staggering amount of the Puerto Rican debt, that's what prompted PROMESA, that's the, the Fiscal Oversight Com- uh, Committee, 
assigned by President Obama, uh, which de facto became the governing body of Puerto Rico. So actually, right now, we don't have a democratic government. We, we have a democratically elected government, but all Puerto Rican spending as a whole have to go through the fiscal control board. And they are the ones who are cutting funds from uh, the university. They're, they're cutting more than half of the University of Puerto Rico's budget. They're uh, going to sell PREPA or our electric utilities agency. They're the ones who are leading the, the charge on the, on the closing of public housing, public uh, schools, and health uh, on health insurance, etc. They're, they're cutting on all of our, of our essential needs. I'm speaking with the philosophy professor and political activist Bernard Tort. So this sort of approach, I mean, uh, it's not going to work. Obviously, I mean, they're just squeezing uh, blood out of out of a stone. Uh, there are no resources in Puerto Rico to service this debt. But do they have a plan? Does it even make sense on their own logic? I think the logic is it's of extracting as much as much wealth as they can before. Uh, I think they know in the end it's unviable and untenable. But I think it's a very predatory a predatory approach in terms of extracting all the wealth possible before they they simply give it over to another administration. So it's it's a, a mixture of the global tendency of the financial capital, of financial capital, of using debt as the main mode of extraction of wealth in, in an economy that's constantly changing through the due to technology and, and changes in modes of production. It's a mixture of that with an elite class who are only out to make a buck. So the, I, I, in answer to the question, I think there's no plan. I think the plan is to squeeze, as you said, the rock dry and then leave and let someone else deal with the, with the problems. stand on the moral foundations of our nation when they are built on such unstable ground? How broken does our political system have to be? How roiled by corruption and contempt for the governed before we find common purpose in repairing it? And if there is a limit to what we can tolerate, how might it look when that limit is reached? For that answer, we turn to Puerto Rico, where for the past week, protesters have turned out to demand the resignation of Governor Ricardo Rosseo. We're tired of the cynicism. They put down women. They put down the LGBT community, people with disabilities, corruption. It is insane. We are tired. We can't take it anymore. Puerto Rican singer Ricky Martin on Wednesday outside the capital in San Juan, joined by rappers, artists, athletes, and tens of thousands of others from both major political parties on the island. The protests began last weekend when the Center for Investigative Journalism in San Juan published some 900 pages of text messages between the governor, members of his administration, and a lobbyist exchanged on the Telegram app. This was one nasty chat. The leaked chatroom conversations between the governor and 11 others are laced with profane, homophobic, and sexist comments, and in one case, talk of violence against the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yulín Cruz. 
The governor's chief financial officer, Christian Sobrino, wrote, I'm dying to shoot her up. The governor responded, you'd be doing me a big favor. In one exchange, Governor Rosello called a former New York City councilwoman a whore. Governor Ricardo Rosello is defying calls to resign and apologizing for his role in what has now been dubbed Ricky leaks. It's a scandal where 900 pages of conversations were leaked, showing the government manipulating media stories and trying to discredit negative press coverage. It's like a window into the unconscious. Pedro Reina Perez is a journalist and historian with both the University of Puerto Rico and Harvard. We have very little regard for public officials, and the chat basically gave us evidence that what we thought about them and, and what we thought they thought about us was true. He says that for Puerto Ricans, pummeled by financial crisis, punishing austerity, and lagging recovery from the devastation of Hurricane Maria, learning that their own government mocks them has been too much to bear. We have had a political class that has basically enslaved the rest of the island for their own economic interests. That's what we've been learning for the past 25, 30 years, but everything has come crashing down in this moment. We did not reach bankruptcy out of the blue. The group of 12 men also mocked the poor and the dead from Hurricane Maria. At some point, the number of corpses at the morgue in San Juan was so overwhelming that they had to be placed on the floor and they mock the fact that corpses are on the floor. And at one point, Christian Sobrino, who was a participant in the chat and who was the chief financial officer for the government, basically said, we need more corpses for our crows. Meaning their critics. I mean, I say it right now and um, I get goosebumps. This part is one uh, of the elements that has brought forth so much public outrage. They can only talk about their interests. There is no expression in the chat about public concerns for the well-being, for economic recovery. No, it's just us. The chats show public officials who are obsessed with re-election at any cost, manipulating media coverage and public perception, and using public funds to do it. One thing that we suspected and was confirmed through the chat, they have a, a, a farm of trolls on social media. They were paying people to basically, you know, comment, take part in surveys, attack people that were critical of the government. And for me, that's one of the worst things that has come out of the chat. They were being paid to basically destruct the opposition, be it a political party or someone who dissented from from the governor's positions. Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. They have 14 different languages to choose from, and their teaching methods have been proven to be effective across multiple studies. I can even attest to this myself. I have used multiple language apps in the past, including Babbel, long before they got in touch about sponsorship. And I could easily tell how much more effective Babbel was at giving me language skills that I could put to use right away. Babbel's lessons are loving 
mainly created by over 100 language experts, otherwise known as real people, not by a translation machine. You learn through interactive dialogues so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent and focus on real-life scenarios you're most likely to find yourself in. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. All it takes is a few easy steps to get started. Go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for absolutely free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States. That's critical to understanding the island's historical, political, and economic situation. And we rightfully make fun of, especially politicians, who seem not to understand that. On another level, there are reasons to think about Puerto Rico as a different place. Puerto Ricans' decisive, collective uprising in response to clear revelations of anti-humane governance, not the least of them. It's hard not to find inspiration in the vibrant, multi-sector protests in Puerto Rico and on the mainland, even recognizing the deep hardships and systemic failures that fuel them. We're recording on July 25th. Governor Ricardo Rosselló announced his resignation late last night. Joining us now to talk about the protests that made that happen and what in turn spurred them is writer Ed Morales. He teaches at Columbia University's Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race, and his new book, Fantasy Island, Colonialism, Exploitation, and the Betrayal of Puerto Rico, is forthcoming from Bold Type Press. He joins us now by phone from here in town. Welcome back to Counterspin, Ed Morales. Hi, uh, how are you doing, Janine? I'm good, I'm good. Well, to begin and end with these private text conversations recently exposed among Rosselló and these 11 advisors would be to miss the point. But those chats were a flashpoint for a reason, because of what they revealed and also what they illustrated the attitude of these men, they were all men, toward women, gay people, opponents, supporters. It's a cornucopia of toxicity. Can you place, though, the latest revelations in the context of what we and what Puerto Ricans already knew? Sure. The chats really have gotten a lot of attention because of the offensive content. And that's really important to underline, and it is part, a really big part of the response against him. It's really important to also understand that in the chats were potential outlinings of a case against the governor and the other people in the chat, most of whom he dismissed or accepted their resignations, that had to do with the improper sharing of information with particularly one man named Elias Sanchez, who is this sort of super lobbyist and consultant in Puerto Rico, who was in on all these conversations about official government business. And a lot of the vulgar attacks that they directed at people had to do with these seedy kind of contract deals that people like Elias Sanchez and Edwin Miranda, who was one of the major public relations people in Puerto Rico, profited from. So... I think the main reason 
that I really think a lot of people got upset was the Christian Sorbino comment. Christian Sorbino was the governor's non-voting representative on the Fiscal Oversight and Management Board and also in charge of this financial institution that had replaced the Government Development Bank, which was dissolved during the debt crisis. So that's the one that Christian Sorbino joked about, the fact that bodies that were uh, from the Hurricane Maria you know, and whether there were any crows or vultures uh, available to eat them to relieve the, the stress of the piling of the body. People who were really suffering emotionally from the after effects of Hurricane Maria and probably even economically were most upset about that. Then there are all the people who were upset about the anti-women and homophobic content. But I think that people in Puerto Rico were really well aware of the corruption rumors you know, two weeks before the uh, Secretary of uh, Education was arrested, along with the Secretary of uh, Health Insurance, for improper granting of contracts without proper bidding procedures. And also, Puerto Rico has suffered through several corruption scandals from both of its major political parties for 20 years at least. So it's not just being nasty, although there's a long list of that if folks want to yes. look for that. It's everything and, all together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, Rosa Yowid said he was letting off steam, but then this real favor trading. Well, in your piece for The Nation, you note that the blame for the pervasive nature of corruption in the government can clearly be laid on these politicians themselves, their privileged boys club and their private school elitism. But you say... Puerto Rico's colonial relationship with the United States must also be blamed. What are you getting at there? Yeah, I think there's two things that we can talk about there. One is, as I state in the piece, because Puerto Rico does not have a voting representative in Congress, that's part of the deal of being an unincorporated territory and yet having citizenship. They have this thing called the resident commissioner. It's an office. And really, the resident commissioner really lives the life basically of a U.S. representative, except they don't have a vote. So their main way to influence what goes on in Washington is to lobby informally their fellow legislators, and they're really involved in the Puerto Rico government lobbying process, which is carried out by this agency called PRAFA, which has offices in Washington and New York. So that sort of culture of the only political power that you have is lobbying, I think, in a way, sort of uh, seeps back to the island, and uh, particularly when you see that many of the recent governors were resident commissioners before they came governor, because it's sort of a platform. It's sort of like being a governor or a senator as a platform right. for being elected president. Being the resident commissioner is so. So it's sort of a culture of lobbying and cultivating influence and influence peddling that happens. And because of the imposition of the Fiscal Oversight and Management Board, it's taken away so much of the agency of the government itself on the island because all of its moves have to be approved by the Fiscal Oversight and Management Board. I mean, in terms of apportionment, and that's what most of the legislation has to do with. Democracy has become kind of a a joke on the island because there's a delegitimization that happens with the oversight board.
And during my time here, I watched what started as small protests explode into this massive movement, drawing in hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans demanding the governor resign. And then last Wednesday, things reached a climax. The governor had said that he would be delivering a message. And so a huge crowd gathered outside his mansion in Old San Juan. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited all day. And with each passing hour, the anticipation grew because people wanted to know what he was going to say. A little before midnight, the governor started to speak in a video streamed on Facebook. And the crowd went mostly silent. People huddled around their cell phones to listen to the address. And the governor spent like 10 minutes talking about his accomplishments. Me entregué día el máximo, dedicándole día y noche para atender cada una de las necesidades de mi pueblo. But then he got to the words that everyone in that crowd and so many people across the island had been waiting for. Con desprendimiento, hoy les anuncio que estaré renunciando al puesto del gobernador. He said he'd be stepping down on August 2nd. So when this happened, I was on Calle Fortaleza. That's the street that the governor's mansion is on. And I was standing just beyond a barrier that the police had put up to keep people away from the front gates of the mansion. And that's where these protests have been centered for the last few weeks. And all around me, people were shouting and they were hugging and they were kissing. They were flinging beer and wine into the air. Reinaldo Cortez told me it was about time for the governor to resign. Rosana Cepeda said it was the first time she'd seen Puerto Ricans so united that she hoped people realized the power they possess when they unite to demand something. El gobierno de Puerto Monstro. Jorge Rivera said the government had awoken a monster in the protesters. And Nicole Cordero said this moment was so incredible for her because she and other Puerto Ricans were finally expressing what they'd been feeling for so long, a powerlessness a powerlessness over corruption, over the direction their island has been taking amid its economic crisis, over the feeling that young people have no future to look forward to in Puerto Rico. The protests may have started small, but from the beginning they were intense and furious. It was Thursday, July 11th. The governor had cut short a European vacation and was racing home to deal with the political fallout after the FBI arrested two ex-officials in his administration on corruption charges. It was while he was on his way back that a local blogger published some of the first few pages of those leaked private text messages. In them, the governor called the former speaker of the New York City Council a whore. That language infuriated members of the Colectiva Feminista en Construcción, a feminist activist group. They organized the first protest against the governor at the airport, with furious women and men shouting for him to resign. So Ann Davila is a spokeswoman for that group, and she said the reason they were so angry was because they'd been trying for close to a year to get the governor to do something about a spike in domestic violence on the island in the wake of Hurricane Maria. 
They even had a meeting with him. Pero que él no pensaba que había que llamarle emergencia. But he didn't agree that the situation was an emergency, Davila said. And so, when these texts came out, Davila said it confirmed what she and her fellow activists had always suspected, that the governor didn't care about their concerns. Y no solamente eso, es activamente homofóbico, machista. And not only that, he was actively sexist, actively misogynist, Davila said. And so, they went to meet him at the airport with bullhorns and signs, not expecting that within a few days, those small protests would explode into the largest protest movement Puerto Rico has ever seen. And now a new bombshell, the release of hundreds of pages of chat messages. A few days after that protest at the airport, Puerto Rico's Center for Investigative Journalism got hold of nearly 900 pages of the governor's texts and published them all. That's where we saw the governor scheming about manipulating the public. That's where the jokes about Hurricane Maria's dead came to light, the mocking of poor people. So, within hours, people started showing up outside the governor's stately mansion, La Fortaleza, in Old San Juan. And they kept coming all weekend. We are indignant, said Lourdes Rivera. He disrespected us. It's about the chat, she said, but it's also because of the way he's mocked all of Puerto Rico. And I think this is the final straw. Governor Rosello's tenure has been marked by controversial policies. Amid the island's debt crisis, he's moved to privatize the energy grid, he's closed public schools and privatized other services like schools, like ferries. He's talked about seeing Puerto Rico as a blank slate, as a place that needs to attract overseas investors and cater to tourists if it's going to emerge from its economic crisis. But for a lot of Puerto Ricans, these policies sound like they're aimed at making Puerto Rico an island for outsiders and that the governor doesn't care about its residents. So for a lot of them, these 900 pages of texts seemed to confirm suspicions that the governor cared more about his political career than about the fate of the island. The governor's text messages got the attention of Puerto Ricans on the island and off of it. The day after they were published, Puerto Rican rapper Residente, a big celebrity, posted a video saying he was coming to Puerto Rico to join the protests. By the way, he's got more followers on Instagram than the entire population of Puerto Rico. He asked them to join him for a massive demonstration in front of the island's Capitol building. Within hours of his announcement, the trap superstar Bad Bunny posted on Twitter saying he was postponing his European tour to come home too. Their announcements gave the street protests a shot of energy. In recent years, there have been lots of protests in Puerto Rico against the government, but they've fizzled out. Now, the fact that the island's superstars were flying home made everyone feel like this was different. On the afternoon that Bad Bunny said he'd be at the protests, the energy outside the governor's mansion was electric. Ricky, the people are to be respected, the crowd shouted. That night, things turned chaotic in Old San Juan. The police fired tear gas to disperse the protesters. Furious demonstrators, their faces covered in bandanas, broke windows and painted graffiti on some of San Juan's most historic buildings, its old cathedral, its Department of State. Ricky resigned, the graffiti read, corrupt pig, and the most common, a number, 4,645. 
one of the estimates for the number of people who died after Hurricane Maria. Looking around after the dust settled that night, Sofia Vasquez said she had no problem with the spray paint and shattered glass. There are people here who had to bury their own dead after the hurricane because no one showed up to take the bodies away, she said. Or they still haven't seen the bodies of their dead loved ones because budget cuts have decimated the Forensics Institute. This graffiti can be fixed with paint, Vasquez said. Our dead relatives are worth more than any building, as historic as it might be. So it was about one in the morning, uh, as a friend and I were in one of the groups of protesters playing cat and mouse with the police dodging tear gas. We were watching as, as someone was lighting a fire in front of Banco Popular. When a kid of about like 20 years old came up to me and asked me in English, did you know that Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States? And it was, it was a funny little moment, and, and I suspect that Oscar Lopez uh, felt a similar way uh, when uh, I w- walked up to him and shook his, shook his hand effusively and said, Felicidades! It's been filled with lots of little weird moments like that. It was just two weeks ago that this all started. The Center for Investigative Journalism released 900 pages of a private online group chat. Remember, kids, nothing's ever private online. Between Governor Ricky Rosillo and 15 of his associates, in which they discussed how government positions were being sold, joked about killing the mayor of San Juan, made sexist and homophobic jokes about everyone, and revealed how aid for hurricane victims had been diverted so that the first lady could take credit for it, which resulted in truckloads of aid getting lost and misplaced. And then on top of that, made jokes about feeding the cadavers of hurricane victims to crows. This by a governor who at that time in public was denying that there were even people dying from the hurricane. A local news agency uh, analyzed the chat, and they found evidence of seven different crimes revealed just in the chats alone. At the same time that these were being revealed, the former Secretary of Education here was arrested for corruption charges. Protesters, uh, protests organically began in front of La Fortaleza, which is the governor's mansion in Old San Juan. It's in like the corner of this old walled city that is San Juan. So it's it's the very edge. It is bordering on the bay. They're trapped inside. Um, on Monday, July 15th, uh, the nightly protests had grown to a couple of thousand people. And at 9 p.m., the police had decided that enough was enough. And you can see a video. There's a video out there of them casually tossing the tear gas grenade into the crowd, just kind of going bloop right into the middle of everyone. But instead of dispersing, the protesters spent the next four hours battling the police in the street. That was the night that I returned home from Puerto Rico from a trip to Chicago. Uh, I arrived at the airport at midnight. My my friend who had offered to pick me up texted me that he wouldn't be able to because he was dodging tear gas. So I hopped in a taxi and asked the driver, hey, I'm going back home from Puerto Rico. She said that it seemed like the protesters were going to lynch the governor and she was all in favor of it. She tore into the governor for being on the side of the rich, and it was clear that Ricky, the governor, was toast. The last two weeks in Puerto Rico have been, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, 
a revolution that none of us have ever experienced before. So here's some unorganized observations on an unorganized revolution. First, there is no central committee. From the first night of the process, protest, it was simply common knowledge that you went to La Fortaleza with your friends, your family, your horse, whatever. Organizing done by, was done by a myriad of different groups. Uh, the Colectiva Feminista uh, comes to mind uh, from the very beginning, but it was spread amongst all different groups. There was no, uh, no one was in charge, ever. Uh, at one march, I met up at uh, El Hangar, which is a queer performance space, and they had snacks for us to take, uh, as well as uh, little Ziploc baggies uh, with the towel soaked in vinegar inside, so in case there was vinegar. Even at the protest, there is no center. In front of La Fortaleza, at the barricade, there's one large group. And then a block away, there's another large group in front of the cathedral. In the Plaza de Amis, there's another group where people collect. Across the island, those who couldn't make it to San Juan gathered in their own town plazas or shut down highways. Cacos and queers. The protesters have been, uh, the protests have been radically different uh, by the visible presence of cacos and queers. Caco is a slang, and I had to ask my, my sister-in-law how to translate this, and it came up with neighborhood thugs, los cafres, the, the guys hanging around on the street corners with their pants down, showing their underwear, smoking dope, and riding their motorbikes. The motorbikes. Ray Charlie is a guy who organizes motorbike paseos. They go drive around in a motorbike, and he organized them to ride at the protest. A, pro- a procession of a thousand motorbikes entering old San Juan, revving their engine, blaring their sirens. It was the cavalry, and it was, and they were everywhere. It was great. You'd never seen them before a protest. And alongside them were the queers. Remember, it was just last month that the 50th anniversary of Stonewall was celebrated. It was the slogan, Stonewall was a riot. The rainbow flag has been everywhere. Body paint, glitter, booty shorts. Uh, Ricky Renuncia. The demand at the protest was never for impeachment. It was for his immediate resignation. Optimism. From the moment that the first tear gas Canada was thrown and the protesters stuck around, everyone knew they were going to win. Every protest was also a celebration of itself and the belief that there was no turning back. Most protests you go to, you're like, geez, what's going to happen? Are we going to do this or not? This one, everyone was there going, we're ready. We're like, it was, it was amazing. Everyone was just filled with utter confidence and other optimism. I've seen people crying in the streets from joy at these protests. When the downpour hit at that march of 500,000 people, the, the moment that the, it started to rain, the song Elemento Boricano was being performed by Mark Anthony you know, on, on speakers. Um, thousands of people singing along, Yo te quiero, Puerto Rico. I love you, Puerto Rico. And in the moment that there's a point in the song where it changes from the, 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 the lyrics of the original poem into like this, you know, the, the drums start kicking in. And it's like it building. It's like bum, 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 bum which is not how some goes at all. Um, and I looked over, and there was these uh, five people dancing to it, and, and, and they, they sort of reached down 
to the puddles on the on the freeway that we're on, and they put their hands in the puddles and threw the water up in the air. There was so many moments of just sort of like pure, like beautiful people, like especially the rain, like pouring rain, and people were like, "We're not leaving. We're staying here, and we're going to keep waving our flags, and we're going to keep drumming, and we're going to keep singing." It was uh, amazing. Um, this is serious. Uh, I'm a student now, and I have a class in global studies. And and in one of my classes, in the middle of all the protests, uh, I went and and my teacher. Uh, there's only three students in the class, and my teacher is always kind of like walking around from the class, looking as if there was 20 people in the room. For the first time ever, he sat down, and he said to us. Let's talk about what's going on here. And the night before, he had heard on the television people chanting "Vamos adentro," which means "Let's go inside." As as we uh, uh, in front of La Fortaleza, I didn't tell him that I was one of the people that was actually chanting that. But uh, and he was like, "This is serious." And it was a moment of just like there was these times where you were in these protests. And, you, and there is a sense of, like, I'm not at a protest anymore. I'm at a rebellion. And this is serious. There was a movement here in, in the 1960s and 70s in New York the Young Lords. This was perhaps for those of us of a certain age <laughs> that we remember seeing, you know, that type of activism among Puerto Ricans in New York. I'm wondering, are there any parallels or any historical parallels that we can draw from what the Young Lords activism looked like to what we're seeing today? Or is today just a completely different beast altogether? Whoever wants to take that is fine. The Young Lords were listening to their people. They were listening to disenfranchised communities of color in New York and asking them what they wanted and trying to act on those needs. And that's the exact opposite of what the Puerto Rican government has done. And that's part of what has really gotten people so upset. You know, all of us growing up right now, have we haven't lived in a time where the Puerto Rican government really prioritized the needs of Puerto Ricans first. We don't really know what that would look like. And a major difference between both is that Young Lords was like personality driven of real like um, leaders. And this is absolutely horizontal movement where there is no actual leaders. And I think that's also unprecedented in Puerto Rico. You always have like leaders who organizations who push for it. But this, this was so spontaneous. Not, I would not say completely organic, but because there were many groups that were organizing about all these issues, but they was just like jumped in and it was was like women were an LGBTQ and young people and students were the ones who jumped in. You mentioned this movement, Sammy, and women. And one of the things the young lords had to reckon with was their own sexism, their own machismo within the party. Caridad, you're nodding. Because we know that that happened. They had to reckon with this idea of bringing women to the table as equals. And that was a very different conversation in the 1970s. But here we are in 2019. Caridad, as a woman, as an activist, as a Puerto Rican, how has it changed, If, in your opinion? Like, w w does this movement really 
bring to light the issues that women are facing, not just Puerto Ricans, but Puerto Rican women? And does it put women at the center of the conversation? Well, in the chat, you know, the way that the women were addressed, and this is a politician, this is a leader of of Puerto Rico, but it's been, you know, the whole puta thing and the, you know, that's basically how women are looked upon by machistas, like the whole misogynistic and toxic masculinity that was how we've grown up. And in the Young Lords, yes, they did have to... Uh, deal with those issues and unsuccessfully because what happened then they couldn't actually accept that women could be equals and, and, and it disbanded and it, it dissipated and they just celebrated 50 years since, you know, the young lords. And, um, you know, and I myself have experienced uh, toxic masculinity from a young lord. This is not a shaft, Papa. This is not, you know, we're not, this is not jive we're talking. This is life. This is equality. This is important. I am a human being. You're not above me. You know, we treat our women the way we treat our planet. Bottom line, exploit, take, destroy, pillage, all of those things, you know, we, and we're we're seeing that today. And, you know, the fact that we have these leaders like Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez, that we have, uh, you know, Melissa Mark Viverito, that we have a Carmen Yulín Cruz, that's amazing but to know that they are suffering these the slings and arrows of this still you know it's it's a it's a fight it's still part of the fight it it makes me really emotional because um it's tiring it's enough that the the fight is big enough but to still have that underlying current of not being enough or not you know is 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 really is really sad Sammy, another issue that's come up in these protests, or not issue, but another interesting part of the protests have been the inclusion of the LGBTQ community. Similar to the question that I just asked Caridad about the role of women, what has been the history, if you will, of LGBTQ Puerto Ricans, their inclusion in any of these movements, and, and not just their inclusion as individuals, but their inclusion with the issues that affect them as well? When we talk about LGBTQ people, what people in Puerto Rico are afraid of are transgender people, are about effeminate gay people. So this is about gender issue. And like the same way that women are discriminated against in Puerto Rico and attacked is the same gender violence that is impacting the LGBTQ community. And I think it was beautiful that it was the poetic justice that it was attacks to women and LGBTQ people who took down this uh, machista government and the most important history, a chapter in our history. Uh, because as Caridad said, in that chat, the text messages that most uh, affected people were the ones against women, the ones against LGBTQ people, particularly Ricky Martin at this point, and about the death of Maria, right? So... To see half million people coming out in support of that, it was basically like Puerto Rico came out, but it came out 
in support of the LGBTQ people. It was like reverse coming out of the closet because coming out of supporting of the LGBTQ movement in Puerto Rico, it, it is devastating for your career, for you. People is not well seen that you support the LGBTQ movement. Uh, I was born and raised in the South and it, it was very homophobic. I left Puerto Rico because of the sexual repression. I, I couldn't leave. I couldn't be who I am. So many, many people who have left the island is not only because of the lack of economic opportunities, it is because of gender repression, right? And to see that support and the LGBTQ flag wave in the protest and people supporting Ricky Martin and all LGBTQ was a beautiful thing. And that's what people now in the island has to get used to. So, Carla, you head up the Centro de Periodismo Investigativo, which is the Center for Investigative Journalism in Puerto Rico. And it was your team. It's a team that is led by women. Actually, it was a woman journalist who broke the story about these chats. A lot of the chats were targeted at women in a, a you know, kind of a misogynistic way. So women are kind of at the center of all of this. Tell me what went on for you when you first got a hold of these messages and you started seeing what was in them. I felt insulted. I was ashamed. Of course, I am a citizen and I am a woman. But we try to look at it from a accountability perspective in terms of what were the violations that were happening here. Because one thing is to know that somebody is not behaving correctly. But another thing is to see that this was not anecdotal. This was a pattern that was not only the governor participating, but all of his closest advisors. You know, it was a generalized problem. Sandra Guzman, you were watching this from the mainland. You write a piece for CNN.com. It's called Women in Puerto Rico Know All Too Well Why Rosselló Must Resign. And you basically say that these private chats kind of sent women to say, OK, yeah, se acabó. You know, we've had it up to here. What was that tipping point and what's the kind of history that got them to this point? I remember when I first read about the attacks on Melissa Mar Viverito in New York and the governor and his buddies uh, calling her a whore and encouraging violence against her and another mayor. I thought about how the personal is political and how the um, internal or intimate mindset of a politician, of an elected official, usually transfers into policy. And this governor basically was ignoring the women. And when the chats were revealed, it all became clear as to why the women have been ignored. They're not taken seriously. All right. So, Natalia, you grew up in Puerto Rico. Um, you actually were on the ground for the entirety of the protests from when they began up until the resignation. So I just want to say thank you for all of your great on-the-ground reporting for Latino rebels. And so... You actually grew up going to protests with your mom as a little girl in Puerto Rico. Now you're a journalist and you're covering the story. So did you see something different happening in the streets 
this time with these protests as opposed to when you were growing up? Was this more women-led? I do believe it was more women-led, and it was very impressive because these have been happening for two weeks, and it wasn't just the big one on Monday that had, like, estimate a million people, but I remember one that was, like, the Monday before that, which was the first one that was called for Capitolio, and every single person who spoke and who was gathering people and who was motivating people were women. And they were, I remember that in the manifestos that they were reading, in the terms that they were asking, they weren't just asking for Rosselló's resignation. They were also asking for something to be done about the domestic violence and the violence against women that's happening in Puerto Rico. When you think about a protest that was, in a lot of ways, sparked by women, led by women, because you were on the ground, really witnessing history in an extraordinary way, you know, hundreds of thousands of your fellow American citizens basically saying enough is enough. Is there a moment that you just kind of can't get out of your head? So I think it was that same Monday. I don't remember the date. It was like two weeks ago. The first big one that was that watched a march from El Capitolio to Fortaleza. My line of view was the cops, the barricade and the people in the front. And a lot of the people in the front were young women who were holding their hands up saying, we're not throwing anything, we're not being violent, who were holding signs. And and I just remember, it was so vivid. I have this clear image of women behind the barricade looking at these cops face to face saying, we're not afraid. We're here to march. We're here to protest. We're here to change. The images that I love seeing... Were the women dancing as they're protesting? How did you see it from the mainland? I remember going to bed and I saw all these live feeds of different people showing us images of the gassing taking place. And it was very disturbing, but I had to go to bed. And so the next morning, I woke up and I saw an image of all of these beautiful bouquets of flowers laid at the feet of those barricades that Natalia was talking about between the people and Fortaleza. And there were all these beautiful bouquets of all these resplendent tropical flowers And the flowers were for Maria's dead, which I understand in the chats were made fun of, were being contemplated to being fed to the crows. But I remember being very emotional about the flowers at the feet of the police officers that hours earlier had gassed these people. It was very beautiful to see how peaceful these protests were and how creative they were. In fact, I just finished writing a piece for NBC News calling it the most beautiful revolution the world has ever seen because we protested in such magnificent ways. There was drumming, bomba y plena. There was dancing. I would like to say that, on the other hand, yes, this was a peaceful protest, but force was still used against protesters at at some points. 
there were some people and, and youngsters that were hurt and women that were hurt because of how police behave at the most tense moments. But, I, you know, I just want to acknowledge that some people were hurt. I did see a lot of, especially being behind police lines, I did see how unprovoked police got very, very violent um, for no reason whatsoever. And I'm not sure if you guys have been scouring. Everything that Carla just said is true. Police were very, very aggressive. We saw a lot of cases of police brutality. We saw a lot of videos on social media of people getting beaten with billy cubs. We saw people getting shot with rubber bullets. We saw people getting gassed um, in residential areas. But to add to that and to keep the topic of women, I don't know if you guys saw Cacerola Girl. Yes. <laughs> um, who became an instant internet icon. <laughs> And honestly, one of the biggest uh, shows of bravery I've ever seen in my life, which was this girl who had a cacerola, which is like a saucepan. And she was like banging the cacerola with the cops in her face. She had like 20 police officers on her. And she was just staring at them. Standing her ground and saying, I'm not afraid of you. I'm going to continue my protest. And it was one of the most spectacular things and one of the most awesome examples of women being brave in these circumstances. People have to understand, Puerto Rico has a long history. It's uh, 500 years of governance in Puerto Rico. Uh, there have been, uh, during that period of time of 500 years, there have been 286 governors of the island of Puerto Rico. Most of them, about 147, were under Spanish rule. And then there was a period uh, when of direct American control of the island when the president appointed about 27 governors. And and it's only been in the past 60 years or so that there's actually been elected governors by the people themselves. And there have only been 12 elected governors of Puerto Rico uh, since the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico was created. Uh, in um, uh, It'll be actually um, 67 years uh, ago tomorrow. July 25th is the anniversary of the founding of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. So in all those 286 governors, never has a governor been forced to resign by a popular protest. So this is really unprecedented in the entire history of Puerto Rico, going back to Ponce de Leon, who was the first governor uh, of Puerto Rico back in 1508. Uh, so the power of the Puerto Rican people to be able to force this governor to resign as a result of the scandalous uh, uh, chat messages that were uncovered uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, is really going to put the island in, an, in a very difficult situation. I mean, on the one hand, all these young people, a whole generation of young people now have a new sense of power, of the power that people can have to affect governance. 
But the problem becomes now what happens next? Uh, the, even the, the succession issue is going to be tough because the woman who's going to come in as, as uh, uh, interim governor is not uh, uh, doesn't have a whole lot of experience. Neither did Ricky Rosselló, which is one of this, the uh, the real stories here, that this was an actually a very incompetent and un- inexperienced person from the beginning with a certain arrogance in the way he dealt with his own population. But um, history is replete with examples of popular uprisings that got rid of a corrupt or dictatorial government, but the people ended up with worse situations. Let's, uh, uh, can we forget Tahrir Square uh, in 2011 and the uh, overthrow of uh, Mubarak after uh, several weeks of protest by the people? Or go back a little further to the Philippines uh, in 1986 and the overthrow of Marcos by popular uh, protests, uh, or even further back to 1979 and Iran and the overthrow of the Shah. In each of those cases, people thought their country was going to change dramatically and ended up, in some, in some cases, in worse situations than before. So there's going to be a real test now uh, among the leaders and the activists of Puerto Rico. Can they unite? Can they come up with a, a political force, a leadership that is really accountable to the Puerto Rican people? And that's going to be the, the big test in the future. As extraordinary as a thing it has been to witness what the people of Puerto Rico have done with simple, complicated, intense protest, there's also a part of me that feels deeply sad because the people of Puerto Rico still do not have self-determination. They, yes, in el sentido de que they went to the streets and they made this happen. They did that by using their bodies and their self-determination to take action, but they don't govern themselves. Right. Puerto Rico is governed by Washington, D.C., and they don't even have, they have a minor representation, a non-voting representative in Congress. They are a colony of the United States of America. So this is what's frustrating, because if you look at the history of the Puerto Rican people, what they have done, they got the U.S. Navy out of Vieques. They got the Navy to leave an island. The, the Puerto Rican people have been exemplars of protest and resistance. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of Puerto Rican politics, because to be honest with you, I think the bigger issue here, Maria, this is very different. And I think you're right in terms of the colony and the relationship with the United States. But at the same time, there is local governance in Puerto Rico. Although I think, you know, when we talked about it uh, last week on In the Thick, there's a political elite class that has basically perpetuated colonialism. And it's created a colonial mindset in Puerto Rico that, you know what, we can never change. This is the way we are. We're corrupt. Our politicians are mediocre. And we're never going to be able to change the system. And, you know, that's become ingrained in generations of Puerto Ricans. I mean, seriously, like, you know, when I would start covering this issue 10 years ago saying, let's put Puerto Rico first, people would be like, ah, mijo. You can't. No way. Come on. You know, we're never going to get anything. And to see this evolve into what is going to be a complete reexamination of Puerto Rican society and politics to me, Maria, I am like just emotionally drained, but in a good way. And I want to just shout out all those young people in Puerto Rico who have been out there on the streets 
telling other generations that this matters inspiring other generations like mine and and my dad's generation to come out because it was the young people yo it was the young people for la juventud see or no yes i talked to young people in the last two or three weeks who were involved in this movement who told me you know what julio um i started reading you in high school (laughs) and you were talking about putting puerto rico first and There's so many other voices, you and others that have said, we need to start changing. We need to start decolonializing our mentality here. Cool. And to see this now, I'm like, it's happening. And I think people need to sit back and watch this and see what evolves. That's why I don't want to get into this sort of like what's next or who's going to take over for the governor. That's not the issue here. The issue is. We are rethinking our entire society. Wow. We're going to decolonialize ourselves. And that doesn't mean political status. That doesn't mean independence or statehood. That means... It means decolonializing the mind is what you're saying. Exactly. Dude, I love it. So from the horror, something kind of beautiful. We've just heard clips today from Newsbeat, Why Is This Happening, Jacobin Radio, On the Media, Counterspin, Code Switch, This Is Hell, The Takeaway, Latino USA, Democracy Now!, and In the Thick. And uh, I obviously let the show go a little long today. There was a lot to cover. And and then you may have just been wondering, uh, hey, don't you usually describe, you know, little a little description of each clip in the summation, and that's true. I, I didn't do that today, and, and the reason is related to why this episode is a few days late, and the answer to all of these questions is that I have been sick, pr- quite sick. It's, I, I, I don't recall being this sick in quite a while. You know, fever, chills, sweats, other things I'm too polite to mention. Uh, I've just I've been laid out for uh, for a few days, and and so the only reason this show exists is because I got about ninety percent of it done before I got sick, and then it took the end of last week and all weekend to recover to the point where I could uh, eke out the last ten percent. And get the show posted. So uh, that's where we stand. And I mentioned all of this just as forewarning that unfortunately, for all of these unforeseen uh, circumstances, there will not be a new episode this coming Tuesday as there normally would be. Uh, also, just apologies for this one being late, but now you know why. And and unfortunately, I, I hate to say that I have not been able to pull together a bonus episode for the members for you know th- this past week for obvious reasons i just did not have the energy to make that happen so um it it, it comes at an inopportune time like i've been mentioning recently that we're sort of in particular need of new members because you know i've described a variety of reasons i i feel um i mean i've gotten messages from people saying you know they've been going through politics fatigue and so they've been dropping off listening to the show or you know they've actually i mean i i've gotten messages from people saying i'm sorry i have to cancel my membership with your show because i want to go support this other show instead so there there's the competition uh issue 
And so people have been stepping up. You know, there's been a nice little trickle of new members and even existing members uh, upping their, uh, you know, their pledge amount. And that is hugely appreciated. It's, it's making a difference. And, and then for this to happen, it's, it's almost as if, you know, in response to people stepping up to support the show, I then can't give you what has been promised. <laughs> I can't give you as many episodes as I want to give, you know, then can't give a, a bonus episode as intended. So just, you know, apologies all around, but don't misunderstand. I know how forgiving you guys are. I don't really think you're mad. I don't get angry messages from people saying, you know, how, how dare you not put out as many episodes, <laughs> especially in a circumstance like this. So I know you're not mad, but I feel compelled to apologize anyway. And that's just how it is. So now you know the state of affairs. Uh, I uh, fully believe that I am well on my way to recovery. I'm not a hundred percent out of the woods, but I'm not like bedridden anymore. So um, you know I'm going to rest up a couple more days. I hope that by Friday's episode and and the prep that goes into that, you know I'll, I'll be back up to speed. So. That's the plan. We'll see how it goes. In the meantime, of course, as always, the number to dial 202-999-3991. Just a quick reminder that Babbel is the language learning app designed to get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts in 14 languages, and the lessons last only 10 to 15 minutes. So go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com. And one last question before I go, did you know that your phone can be a powerful force for change? I think you do, because you already know that Credo Mobile donates $150,000 every month to groups like Friends of the Earth, the ACLU, and Planned Parenthood. So switch to Credo Mobile, the carrier that stands for women's rights, the environment, social justice, and so much more. Learn more at credo.com best. That's credo.com best. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.